Disrupting the flow of money into coal, gas and oil is critical to limiting the impacts of climate change. Your bank could be investing billions of dollars into the fossil fuel industry. Bank Australia is an ethical bank that doesn't fund harmful industries. Join us and over 180,000 Australians who have made the switch. Search Bank Australia Solutions. My name is Kate Ashmore and I'm a proud Jar Jar Wurrung person. Today's episode of The Cool Down was recorded on the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal lands of the Aura Nation. Together with Footy for Climate, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. Footy comes from Mangrook, a First Nations game that has been played on these lands, which have been protected and nurtured by Australia's first people for tens of thousands of years. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging for their continued connection to the land, water and culture, and look to their guidance and knowledge as we work towards a more sustainable future. We acknowledge the sovereignty was never ceded. This was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome back to another episode of The Cooldown by Footy for Climate, brought to you by Bank Australia. I'm Nick Barr, and in this week's episode, focused on women and climate, I sit down with Grace Vegasana, Climate and Racial Justice Director at AYCC, Emma Pocock, founder and CEO of Frontrunners, and Sam Moston, Chief Executive Women President and Climate Change and Gender Equity Advocate. You're listening to the extended edit of my chat with Emma. The Cooldown is brought to you by Bank Australia. Our next guest is Emma Pocock, co-founder and CEO of Frontrunners. Frontrunners is a movement for athletes working for the future of sport in a changing world by being part of the solutions to the climate and environmental issues facing all of us. She spent over a decade helping her husband, Dave, former Wallabies captain and current independent senator, navigate his professional sporting career with tackling important social issues such as climate change, marriage equality and First Nations justice. She has previously worked in policy and communications in Parliament and has a Master of International Development and a Bachelor of Social Science. She sits on the board of Footy for Climate and also happens to be my new boss, Emma Pocock. Welcome to The Cooldown. Thanks for having me, Nick. You grew up in the northwest of Western Australia in a mining town called South Headland. What was like life like for you growing up there? Yeah, it was good. It was hot. Like I feel well primed for a 38 degree day in Sydney after growing up in the <laughs> northwest of WA. Um, south Headland's 15 minutes south of Port Hedland, which is um, the largest deep sea port in Australia. Most of our iron ore goes out of out of Port Hedland. Um, and obviously iron ore um, is... Use what's used to make steel. So um, I didn't. I had no idea what iron ore was used for as a kid. Like it was mm. only late in my teens where I was like, "Oh, I never actually wondered what all of these people were doing here. What that was for." <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And was your family involved? In mining? Yeah, my dad worked for BHP all through my childhood. Um, it was kind of in the era before fly in, fly out, and he was in charge of, well, as far as I understand it, I mean, like, do you ever really know what your parents do when you're a kid? But mm. my notion of what he did for work was work out where everyone who was moving into the Pilbara region was going to live. And so we had lots of families relocating to the region um, to work for BHP, who had a number of big projects in the area then and, and still does now. Mm. And the fact that your dad worked with BA or for BHP, was that something that you thought about much as a kid? You mentioned you didn't really know what iron ore was and I wouldn't have at that age either. Was, you know, once you did figure out, I guess, what it was and who he was working for, was it something you thought about much? 
I mean, I was really interested. Like, we had the kind of family culture where we would watch the ABC News every night and watch the 7.30 mm -hmm. report and talk a lot about current affairs. Um, and I was really interested as a kid, uh, which is going to give you a good insight into how cool I was <laughs> in um, industrial relations. Uh, and often, you know, my dad and I would have kind of arguments because he obviously was working on the administrative side of BHP and so kind of quite often fell not on the worker side of those disputes, although he always had a great relationship um, across the community, which helps when you're deciding where people are going to live. Mm. Um, so I guess I, I would say like I didn't have a strong um, environmental consciousness at that age, mm -hmm. um, although we took a lot of amazing family holidays through parts of Western Australia that most Australians never get to see through Karajini, up into the Kimberleys, the Wood River, um, the Ningaloo Reef. So was really lucky but never kind of connected that to um, – what was happening in the town that I lived in. And mm. it's been a really interesting thing to think about now as an adult and in my work life about the role of um, extractive industry, how much we rely on those resources for the various parts of our lives that we so rarely think about, but also how we could do those things better. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so it's been a kind of interesting thing to think about given my childhood was kind of so saturated with it, but I was really unaware of it at the time. Yeah, I was going to ask, is it something that you reflect on a lot now as an adult? Yeah, I mean, I, it's, it's one of those... Um, I guess I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, you know. I, th I think it's helpful in the sense that I'm often working uh, with people who come from backgrounds where environmentalism or environmental consciousness hasn't been their primary way of viewing the world and that was definitely how I grew up. Mm. And so I think in that sense those experiences in my childhood were really useful. Um, but no, I wouldn't say it's something I spend a huge amount of time thinking about now. Just now. Yeah, just, just, on this just in this specific yeah. moment. Yeah. <laughs> I forced you to start thinking about it. Um, and, and growing up in that region, was sport a big part of your childhood or was it a big part of your family life? To my shame, it was it was not. I didn't play a lot of sport growing up. I, I played netball a few weeks ago um, for the first time since I was in year seven when I retired with my <laughs> mum as my uh, netball coach. And I think I retired because I was like this, I'm almost six foot and I was this tall from a very young age, so I was always goalkeeper and I hated it, so it kind of like put me off. But, I mean, we watched a lot of sport as a family. My parents were both great athletes when they were younger. Um, my dad was, you know pretty sports mad and I was the honorary son in the family because we only had girls. So I spent a lot of time on the couch watching footy and cricket with him. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't until I met Dave that I really kind of got interested in sport, both as a spectator but also, you know, thinking about sport as a cultural institution and the kind of power that it has in our culture. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned obviously you started becoming more and more involved with sport through Dave. What actually got you interested? Because I know that these two things are going to collide eventually <laughs> as we keep talking. But what actually got you interested in climate in the first place? Yeah, I met Dave, my now husband, um, when I was at the end of my undergraduate degree university. I'd always been really interested uh, in social justice and particularly in, in poverty and poverty alleviation. And he had grown up in Zimbabwe um, and when I met him was busy setting up a community development project back in Zimbabwe um, in a rural area called Nkai. And so I kind of plunged headfirst into getting involved in that work with 
um, him and, and his best friend Luke who were running that project at the time and ended up spending quite a bit of time in rural Zimbabwe, um, which is funny hearing Grace kind of talking about growing yeah. up on the edge of a mining town in Botswana um, and kind of those two parts of my own, own story. But the people that we were working with in Zimbabwe were mostly uh, poor women farmers and so they were just basically growing enough food to feed their families and then hopefully sell a little bit of their produce to be able to do things like send their kids to school mm-hmm. and afford like the very most basic healthcare. Um, and so we started working in this community and mostly we were doing um, food security kind of work, helping people improve their farming practices to increase their yield slightly, working on things like upgrading mothers' waiting rooms so Mm. that women had a place to stay in the days leading up to their birth so that they weren't walking, you know, tens of kilometres while they were in labour. And while we were doing that work, Dave um, had already kind of personally become really interested in climate change, but I was sort of like, well, that's a problem that you can think about. I'm going to keep thinking about these Mm. other things. And I remember one day we'd finished this kind of work that we were doing with some women farmers and we were sitting under a tree waiting for the kind of the heat of the day to pass and having this conversation with one of the community development works there. Actually, his name is Paul Kanye and he used to refer to himself as Kanye East. Um, <laughs> and I sort of said to him, I, I actually think Dave said to him, you know, what, like, what do you worry about the most, Kanye? We were kind of talking about the project that we were helping support and thinking that he was going to, you know, say whatever the next gap in the project was that we could um, start to address. Mm. And he said oh, actually, the thing I spend most of my time worrying about is this climate change. Mm. And he went on to say, you know, it affects us. It's already starting to affect us. We can see the impact that it's having on our weather patterns, on our yields. We've done so little to contribute to the problem, but we're going to be the ones who are first and worst hit by this. Mm. And it was just like a punch to the gut for me because it was like realising that I come from a country that had contributed in an outsized way to a problem that we were going to have a lot more resources to respond to when it started affecting our citizens. And here were these amazing, resilient farmers in the middle of Zimbabwe who had so little in the way of resources to actually manage the problems that they were already experiencing. And so that was kind of like my my big like actual light bulb moment of like, oh, actually, I this is something that we have to work on. Mm. Um, and it took me a while to figure out how I could be part of doing something about that, but that's kind of long been a real motivator for me in thinking about, you know, what we can do here in Australia. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny you mentioned that was you sort of felt like that was Dave's thing, climate change, and you were doing this social justice thing. But, you know, obviously they're incredibly intertwined and we've we've heard that from Grace earlier and, of course, this work as well. You shared this quote with me from Clarissa Pinkola Estes. I've probably That's great, sent Nick. her Nailed uh, it. name <laughs> wrong. Um, you shared it with me off air and I love it. She says, ours is not the task of fixing the entire world at once, but of stretching out to mend the part of the world that is within our reach. What does that quote mean to you and how have you applied that to both your personal life and your career in climate? 
Yeah, I find it so reassuring. I think a lot of the challenges that we're facing can just feel so overwhelming. Um, you know, kind of, I guess, listening to Grace talk and thinking about like what an idiot I was at 23 and, <laughs> and 23 year olds now know so much more about these huge problems that we're facing. And it can be really disempowering to kind of confront them. Um, and I just find these kind of words of wisdom, I guess, from, from Clarissa so powerful because it's like, I don't have to fix the whole thing. I just have to figure out like what's in my remit? What's in my sphere of influence? How mm. can I use the tools and resources that are available to me to act on the things that feel most kind of urgent to me? And that could look, you know, will look very different for, for different people. Mm. Um, but I think it's like a really powerful way to think about how you're spending your time and your energy. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And I can say Emma as my boss, she's uh, definitely made me feel like <laughs> I can somehow contribute and I'm, I'm learning a lot from both Grace and Emma. Um, you mentioned sort of this quote, coming back to that, obviously you started Front Runners and you've been involved, you know, helping Dave to address different issues as well um, through, through his rugby career. Are there other examples of I guess people that you see who are doing things within their reach, and um, I guess can you can you share with us any particular examples? Yeah, I mean, I guess so. One of the the things that kind of happened for me was realizing that we have this kind of urgent, pressing problem uh, of solving the climate crisis, mm -hmm. just a small thing, just a small problem. Um, and that actually, you know, a couple of years ago, we were thinking about where we could make the most impact on that and realised that apart from Dave, there weren't too many people in the sporting landscape who were advocating on this. And that was something that we uniquely had access to. Mm. And then the 2019-2020 bushfires happened and we started to have quite a lot of athletes, both from rugby, but also from other sports who we knew reaching out and saying, privately and kind of saying like, oh, this seems quite bad. Mm. <laughs> what should I know? What should I be reading about? Where can I donate that it's actually going to make a difference? Mm. Um, and it was, again, like a light bulb moment for me of thinking, um, you know, I'd spent a decade helping Dave to use his platform as a professional athlete to do this, but mm. not everyone has someone who's prepared to kind of do that work for them behind not the scenes. Not everyone has an Emma. Yeah. Um, and, and could we find a way to provide that support? And so what I have seen over the last two and a half years since we started Frontrunners is just this amazing network of athletes who have taken, you know, I haven't told them all about this Clarissa Pincola Steve's quote, but <laughs> who, who have taken that kind of really seriously. You know, we saw um, almost 500 athletes sign an open letter to the government asking us to lift our climate ambition ahead of the COP in Glasgow in 2021, you know, that's, you know, almost 500 athletes saying this is something that's within my reach that I can do. Mm. Um, we, and we're seeing these amazing stories, you know, like last year we had in one kind of week um, Pat Cummins coming out and talking about the relationship between Alinta and Cricket Australia and how that sat with him and his values. We saw um, the Diamonds coming out in solidarity with one of their teammates, Danelle Wallums, um, over, over a sponsorship issue as well. And we saw a group of fans of the Frio Dockers um, speaking out about the relationship between the Fremantle Dockers and Woodside. Obviously that's, you know, fossil fuel sponsorship is a really tricky thing for a sports industry where sponsorship is in decline. And so I think it's also amazing that we're seeing sports administrators starting to think, what's within my reach to do about this. And we're starting to see, you know, the first indications that sport's taking this really seriously at that institutional level. We're seeing 
um, sports starting to think about their sustainability plans. We're seeing them start to think about how they actually implement heat policies to protect their players. Um, and so, you know, just in my like work life, I think I get I'm lucky to get to see this people enacting this all the time. Um, you know, sometimes maybe not with the urgency that I'd like yep. or at the scale of ambition that's required for the challenge that we're facing. But I think any way that we're edging towards doing those things is a really incredible uh, thing to see. And you can see that athletes are also really wanting to, to talk more about this these different issues. And I think you mentioned that the cool down had 500 athletes sign up, but I think the initial target was uh, a lot less. So <laughs> yeah. you can see that there's, um, there's clearly this desire for athletes to, to want to get that support as well. Doing this kind of work is really important, but it can be very challenging at the same time. For those who might not be working in this space or want to understand why it can be challenging, can you give us a bit of an insight? Yeah, I mean, we think spend a lot of time thinking about how athletes can use their platforms to talk about the things that matter to them and so I guess have developed a really good understanding of the barriers to doing that work. Um, the biggest one actually, I think the one that people first think of is the kind of public pushback that comes um, and, and that certainly is a real um, barrier. You know, people worry about... Uh, what their teammates might say, what the media might say, what their employers might say. But most of the time, the the barrier that sits behind that and the really the most significant one is that people feel like they don't know enough. They feel like they don't understand the science. They don't understand the issues. If someone asks them a tricky question, they don't know how to answer it. And so we spend a lot of our time working with athletes to help give them the confidence that they can actually learn what they need to know, but that they don't need to be the experts. You know, we have incredible climate scientists right here in Australia who mm -hmm. understand this, who've done the thinking. And actually, you know, it is, it is really important for us to, you know, get ourselves up to speed on those things. But the thing that athletes can contribute is um, the voice that they have. And that might be publicly, it might be using their social media to do that, or it might be privately, it might be asking questions of their sponsorship team, or it might be asking questions internally at the club about how they're going to keep spectators safe on really hot days or when there's bushfire smoke. So, um, yeah, we spend a lot of our time thinking about how to equip athletes with the knowledge and confidence that they need to do this work. Um, and, you know, we've got some real trailblazers who've shown us how to do that um, in sport, but also in other fields. You know, we've seen the corporate sector really take this on in a big way over the last decade. Um, and, you know, we are lucky enough to have Sam here in the room today who's been a big part of doing that, um, both in the sporting world and mm -hmm. also in the corporate world. So uh, it's great for me. I, I can point to so many incredible people across all parts of Australian society who've done this amazing work and that really gives athletes the confidence to do this themselves. Awesome Emma, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Cooldown, a footy for climate podcast. The Cooldown is produced by Sam Dalton and audio is edited by Darcy Parkinson from Producey. Episode research is done by me, Jasper Pittard and Aloise Witkowski.